welcome to Switchblade Sisters, the podcast where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. Every week here on the podcast, we invite a new female filmmaker, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about their favorite genre film, maybe one that influenced their own work. I'm film critic Katie Walsh, and today we have playwright, screenwriter, and showrunner Mary Laws. Hello. Hi, Mary. Thank you for being here. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. This is a really cool podcast. I love women talking about films and talking about genre. That's all I ever want to do. I know. Same here. <laughs> so a little bit about Mary. She is a Texas native, a screenwriter, producer, and playwright based in Los Angeles. She has a master's in playwriting from the Yale School of Drama and honestly a resume to die for. She co-wrote The Neon Demon with Nicholas Winding Refn and Polly Stenham. She's also served as a writer and producer on AMC's Preacher and HBO's Emmy-winning Succession. Folks, she wrote Dundee. Yes, that's the episode where Kendall raps. L to the OG. I really, I, honestly, I could do the whole podcast about that episode. <laughs> next time, next yeah. time. <laughs> She's also the creator, showrunner, and executive producer of Monsterland, an eight-part anthology series premiering on Hulu on October 2nd based on the book North American Lake Monsters Stories by Nathan Ballingrode. I've seen a couple episodes, and it's so good. I am obsessed with the writers and directors that you got to do this series. I mean, it, it is like, it is so good. Uh, today, Mary has chosen to discuss the 1965 psychological horror film Repulsion, directed by Roman Polanski and starring Catherine Deneuve. So, Mary, why did you choose uh, Repulsion? Well, Repulsion I, is one of those movies that ever since I've seen it, I've never been able to shake. And I think about it like almost every time I'm starting a new project. And I, it's not really, that's not really an exaggeration. I think about it every time I'm starting a new project because to me, Repulsion is a great reminder that um, you can bend and break the rules of screenwriting to create something extraordinary that is surprising, um, that will take people on a journey that they didn't know they were going to go on. Um, repulsion, like the thing I, one of the things I love the most about repulsion is the structure. Um, and like, I remember because I come from like a playwriting world, you know, in playwriting, I studied under Paula Vogel, uh, for any theater nerds out there who, uh, love playwrights. Like she's, she's one of like the finest in my opinion, both a playwright and a teacher. And she, she sort of imbues us with this idea that one of your primary tools as a playwright is structure and that you, you know, what's the like expression, I think it's an Edward Albee quote that like con content, and form should fuck or something like that. <laughs> um, and like, I feel like that about like content and structure, you know, content and structure, like your structure should um, uh, speak to what the story is that you're trying to tell. Right. And so, you know, as a playwright, that was, it was a very uh, freeing and just sort of like open-ended idea that you can tell any kind of story that you feel like you need to tell in any kind of structure that makes that story the strongest, right? And and when you when I sort of transferred as from a playwright to um, uh, to a, a screenwriter, 
I was like, wait, what? There are like rules about structure? Like that doesn't make any sense to me. It really doesn't make any sense to me. And it still doesn't. Um, that, you know, you should like, what's that? What's that book? Uh, Save the cat Save or the something cat. like yes, yeah, the classic. Like, I mean, I got, I know that learning about what has worked before is definitely important, but to say that there is one way to do things, that every film should have a three-act structure, structure is like maddening to me because like why, that's that's just like saying, you know, every, every human being should have brown hair. It's just like, no, why? I don't understand that. That doesn't make any sense. No, it, but that is just, it's so maddening to me because stories are so different and they, they're so personal and like, so anyway, what I love about Repulsion is is that it it takes you on this almost two act structured journey, right? There's Carol, the protagonist, and like kind of the first half of the film is her out in the world, and that and you know something is going on with her, and it's really hard to identify. She has a, a strained relationship with men, but also in her sort of private, personal moments, she seems to be unraveling. Um, but you see her like walking, walking the streets, and having dinner with her. The I can't remember his name, but the guy who's trying to like court her, and and. But then the second half of the film is all internal mm -hmm. and it is all in that apartment and it is her losing her mind, losing her grasp on reality. And, and so, and so it really puts the whole movie puts you in inside of her head, but it's because of that two act structure. It is a hundred percent because of that two act structure. Um, and the way that it just keeps getting more and more and more and more internal. And I was just like, this is fucking brilliant. And, and I, I, I think about it every time I'm about to start a new project because I, I won't do it. I won't subscribe to the idea that like television is supposed to have relentlessly forward moving plot or films are supposed to have three act structure or where's the dark night of the soul. I'm just like, fuck that. That's right. not original. And that's not interesting to me. Well, I love this sort of, um, I, I want to say anarchic attitude towards uh, <laughs> traditional structure, because I do think that, you know, there is something to the kinds of genre expectations that we might have in a film or a television show and playing with that. But then I also think, especially in a film like Repulsion, just going on this journey and not knowing where it's going to end is is something so fresh and unique and exciting. And I think that's what makes it feel like to me. I, I watched this film last night and I was like, this feels modern. It feels totally mm -hmm. fresh. Um, mm -hmm. And um, I think that's really remarkable that it can stand this test of time. I mean, it's over 50 years old at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I am going to, maybe this is a good time to do a little plot synopsis. Um, and, you know, like we always say here on Switchblade Sisters, if you haven't seen Repulsion, today's episode will contain spoilers but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. Like we say, it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie Ooh. worth watching. Still, if you want to pause this episode and watch it, now is your chance. <laughs> okay. I, think I may have already I may have already given a few spoilers though, so maybe <laughs> you've missed your chance. <laughs> no, nothing nothing too uh, nothing too um, extreme. Repulsion is a 1965 psychological horror film directed by Roman Polanski, co-written by Polanski and Gerard Brock. 
It is Polanski's second feature film and his first English language film shot in London. And it's the first installment of his quote unquote apartment trilogy, which also includes Rosemary's Baby and The Tenant. All three are horror films, which primarily take place in apartments, as you may have guessed. Catherine Deneuve stars as Carol, a young Belgian manicurist who works in a beauty salon and lives with her older sister, Helen, played by Yvonne Furneaux. She's quite shy and reserved and also quite beautiful, and she's constantly pestered by men for her attention. Hello, darling. How about the other then? Especially the persistent Colin. Well, just, a, just a minute. What about tonight? I'm sorry, but I'm busy tonight. You really make me feel wanted. Who's the lucky boy? I'm having dinner with my sister. She a good cook? So annoying. I hate Colin. <laughs> Played by Ian Hendry. She's also quite disturbed. He's supposed to be like the good guy, too. I know. I can't stand him. <laughs> She's also quite disturbed by the affair her sister is carrying on with Michael, a married Englishman, and especially how he invades, his, invades her space. Is he going to stay here every night? I really don't think it's any concern of yours. His razor and toothbrush are always in her cup, and she constantly has to hear their lovemaking at night. When Helen and Michael take off for a holiday, Carol becomes more and more distant, withdrawn, and isolated. She's sent home from work and misses three days, initially. At the apartment, she wanders around, distracted by the invasiveness of Michael's personal items and tormented by the phone, as Colin and the landlord won't stop calling. Hello? Miss Liddell? Yes? How much longer are you going to keep me waiting for the rent? She experiences terrifying nightmares. Oh, also, there's like another creeper calling on the phone um mm -hmm. doing some hang-ups she experiences terrifying nightmares in which an unknown rapist attacks her in bed and she hallucinates the walls cracking and hands reaching out to grab her in the hallway when colin arrives at her door and bursts into the apartment i'm sorry i just but i have to see you that's all honestly it's been so so miserable without you she bops him on the head with a candlestick and leaves his body in the tub when the landlord shows up looking to collect some rent, he propositions and then attacks. You look after me and you can forget about the rent. And she stabs him to death with a straight razor, leaving the apartment strewn with the dead bodies of her would-be suitor, the landlord, and of course, the rotten rabbit corpse, which she has left out for days. When Helen and Michael return, they come upon the gory scene and find a catatonic Carol under the bed, and they gently take her away. And as the film ends, uh, the camera zooms in on a, on a photo we've seen already of, of Carol as a child, and we don't quite understand what it means. It's very ambiguous, um, but people have speculated that perhaps it means that she has some childhood trauma, and that is what is leading to her um, psychosis. But the other thing that we need to discuss, obviously, is that Roman Polanski is a very bad man. And we are not going to skirt the issue of it and the violent sexual crimes against young girls and women of which he has been accused and convicted. Um, and, you know, this isn't like a I, I don't intend to sort of like land on a right or wrong answer here. It's just how can we sort of tangle with this idea of, the, of this man who has been accused of very bad crimes, who has done bad things to young women he has assaulted young women. Um, and how do we sort of like hold that at the same time as loving this movie? And and the interesting thing I think about 
Polanski is that I think women who are cinephiles and who are, you know, genre fans really connect with Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby um, and identify with it. And it's this sort of like brilliant, both are sort of like brilliant depictions of like what it means to be like mentally tortured and gaslit. And, you know, so how do we like, how do those things exist at the same time? And, and how can we kind of work our way through it? So I, I, you know, there's no um, right or wrong answer here. It's just, just to bring it up and put it on the table. Well, I mean, it's something, you know, my girlfriend and I discuss this all the time because she's also um, like Roman Polanski is like a huge filmmaker for me that I sort of return to all the time. And uh, Woody Allen is a huge filmmaker for her that she was like, this is the reason she's also a comedian and a, a screenwriter. And, um, she was like, this is the reason that I got into comedy was because I loved his film so much. Um, she won't watch any, she doesn't watch Woody Allen anymore. And that's sort of been her decision. I watch Roman Polanski all the time. Um, uh, because I, uh, because they're, they're formative for me. They're really important to me. Um, and so for whatever reason, I have been able to separate art from artist. Um, I'm not terribly interested in seeing any uh, of anything he makes now. Mm-hmm. I'm not terribly interested in watching any of his new work or celebrating him necessarily. I don't believe that he should be given awards or lauded with, uh, you know, any any, any major awards or events by the industry itself. Um, um, but these things have been created and I think that it's actually, um, quite interesting for me to watch them through the lens of knowing exactly who he is and what he has done. Um, and, So I I don't know. I don't know what any answer is, but that's, and I don't necessarily have like peace about any of it, but it's certainly an ongoing discussion that, that I have, we have, my partner and I have in our, in our household. Um, But, you know, I I can't like unsee this movie (laughs) or, or un- unlearn any of the things that I learned from it because it is truly, in my opinion, a brilliant movie. Um, and it, he also is, especially his early work is in my opinion, uh, it's genius. And he, he was able to provide in the horror landscape like this and, and Roseberry's baby in particular, I think, uh, he was able to give a female, protagonist who was not just, you know, running around and being chased by a knife, by a man with a knife. Um, he, he dug deep into female psyche and I don't know, is that because he is the kind of person he is or not? I mean, I don't really, I don't, I don't have any answers. So, uh, and I, yeah, that's, that's all I have to really (laughs) say about it is, is just that it's, his films have become a part of me, um, but it certainly is something that we continue to bring up and question in our in our house. I think that's a, a great answer because it is, you know, it's this idea of the ongoing discussion and 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 not skirting the issue. And and I agree that 
both Repulsion and Rosemary's Baby were very formative for me as well. And and mm-hmm. like you said, it's like I can't unsee that. I can't, you know, remove the influence that those films had on me. Um, and I'm I'm loath to sort of give them up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I saw Repulsion when I was, you know, maybe in my late teens, early 20s. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, whoa, this is this revelatory film for me because mm-hmm. it was about what it's like to be a young woman in the world and the sort of terror mm-hmm. of, of be, mm-hmm. just being a woman on the street. And absolutely. Um, and then the same with Rosemary's baby is like, I, I, that, that ex- the way that it, he depicts gaslighting and mm-hmm. um, mental manipulation in that it's like, you do I almost don't want to get too far into what, what's he thinking? You know, all I can really <laughs> do is, is, you know, take what I feel from it. Anyway, I was also going to mention that in episode seven of Switchblade Sisters, April also addresses this um, issue really beautifully with um, Jesse Nixon Lopez, who is a writer for Stranger Things. They talk about Rosemary's Baby. So if you want to get into it more on the Polanski of it all, (laughs) that's a good little sister episode. Um, But I think we need to take a quick break. So we will be back in just a moment. Macho man to the top rope. The flying elbow. The cover. We've got a new champion. We're here with macho man Randy Savage after his big win to become the new world champion. What are you going to do now, match? I'm going to go listen to the newest episode of the Tights and Fights podcast. Oh, yeah. Tell us more about this podcast. It's the podcast of power, too sweet to be sour, funky like a monkey, woke discussions, man, and jokes about wrestlers' fashion choices, myself excluded. Yeah. I can't wait to listen. Neither can I. You can find it Saturdays on Maximum Fun. Oh, yeah. Dig it. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. Uh, We are talking with showrunner, writer, playwright, producer, Mary Laws about repulsion. And we've already sort of addressed everything to do with Roman Blaine. Not everything, but we've we've gotten that out (laughs) of the way. That was real tip of the iceberg. (laughs) Exactly. I think think we have some more exciting things to talk about than uh, Um, convicted pedophile. (laughs) One of the things that I wanted to... Um, ask you is that I, I feel like with um, Neon Demon and the episodes of Monsterland that I've seen, I love that. And and with Repulsion as well, it's like the horror comes from this really grounded place of reality. Mm-hmm. And there might be supernatural things or hallucinations or, or things that are not, um, you know, in reality, but but it starts from someplace real. And I just mm-hmm. wanted to ask what your approach was to writing horror and, and fusing the supernatural with the realistic. Sure. I mean, that's why I really love the horror genre is is because I, I feel like it um, gives me a chance to talk about my world, uh, my personal world and the world that I'm seeing around me um, in, in a really visceral way, which is how we, I feel it. Um, you know what I mean? Like, I think, (laughs) I think the day that I write something that's just like straight realism will be a surprise, a very big surprise to me. Um, because I think that I have, um, 
I have an extreme emotional palette and I, I think that I, I feel the horror of the world very deeply as a woman, as a gay person, um, as a person who was raised in the South, as a person who consumes the news, as a person who has, um, uh, you know, who, who watches a diverse community, community of people around me be hurt and oppressed, especially in this like current moment, it is, it is painful. Um, it is joyful and it is painful to live in the world. And I think that what the horror genre does for me is that it allows me to express that pain in like the truest way that I really actually feel it. Um, because when you have moments of, of, of fear and endangerment as a woman, those are visceral. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is really hard for me as a as an artist to express in a just sort of completely grounded and, and realistic way. I need that extra element of 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 the supernatural, of the horror, of the unknown, of that thing that um, that we fear or that also astonishes, you know, I because I also I feel like well I'll go into that in a minute, but like I I think that so I think that my combination generally in writing is of that sort of groundedness so that you recognize the world as your own so that I can recognize the world as my own, um, with some kind of otherness because that otherness fills in the gaps for me of, of, uh, or that otherness acts as a, like a sort of, um, uh, representation of like the, the emotionality that I feel about living in the world. Mm -hmm. I, I just think that the horror genre is so exciting in that way. And, um, and it's the only thing that I have seen, you know, a play is when I come from playwriting, a play is so interesting because you can be there and it's all, uh, you know, it's in person, you're breathing together with the actors, the same air. And so there is something so palpable, the energy in a, in a theater is so palpable. Um, and there are lots and lots of bad plays in the world. But when you see a really, really good one, it changes your DNA, it completely alters you. And when I came to film and television, the first thing I wrote was Neon Demon with Nick Raffin. Like, I I was a little bit like, well, he is a filmmaker that I have seen give me that same kind of feeling that I have in the theater on screen. I was so obsessed with his movie, Bronson. Yes, I about love Charlie Bronson. Bronson. Yes, it's so good. And I, I'm always shocked when, when people have seen Drive and they haven't seen Bronson because to me, and I used to say this to him, I, was like, I would always be like, yeah, Drive is good. <laughs> you no. know, Bronson is where it's at though. Like, because it's so it's so visceral and it jumps off the screen and it makes you as an audience member sweat. And, and for me, like that is an experience that I have had in, in life and in the world. And for me, the horror genre is the only other is the only real genre that has done that when people can do that in other, in other kinds of genres on screen, I just like bow down to them. But, but for me, I just feel like I always am returning to horror, 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 because it just gives you that same, that feeling, you know? Yeah. It's so interesting. Cause yes, it, it, I mean, the, that's the thing about film when you can elicit a physical reaction out of someone, whether it's crying or laughing or screaming or, vomiting. I mean, I've never <laughs> vomited from a film yet, but it does happen. Oh, I totally have. Um, when I was young, I, I threw up when I watched, was it, 
if these walls could talk or if these walls, yeah, if these walls could talk during the knitting needle abortion oh my scene, gosh. I, I totally, I, I was maybe too young to know mm-hmm. what that film was about, but right. I watched it and I completely threw up. And I just was like, I think about that all the time too, because not that I necessarily want to experience all that all the time, but I also kind of do because I love any kind of art that really like makes you feel oh right? absolutely yeah absolutely i watched i rewatched neon demon this week um you know to talk about this to to talk to you um and it it was a but it was a joy to rewatch because i'm obsessed with neon demon and <gasps> i it was the third time i had seen it and i was sitting on my couch and instead of being horrified i was sort of like squealing in pleasure at mm. like certain compositions certain line readings i just think that movie is so amazing and I, oh, there is great. a direct through line to i mean there's a, a reference to repulsion in neon demon mm-hmm. um and i think that those two films would make an insane double feature um you know just the way that you're dealing with um women who are looked at and objectified and then their internal experience of it um and the horror of that and and mm-hmm. what that objectification means for them mm-hmm. um was that was that a conversation that you were having with Nick Reffin while you were in the writing process? I mean, were you saying like, oh, this is like repulsion or or was were there any references or things that you guys uh, referred to? I while mean, you- I think I think we watched it together. Oh, Nick okay. and I did. Yeah, we watched a bunch of films together um, and repulsion was was definitely one of them. Um uh, don't look now. I think I remember us watching together. Um, and, and so absolutely we referenced it all the time, all the time, because we were really interested in, um, the internal experience of these women. And like, because I think that movie is very much about like both the internal experience of the women and then the sort of objectification of the women and like the switching between both of those like points of view, Um, and how they then, how the women become to be, begin to objectify themselves as well. Um, you know, I think the whole movie is shot really like through a sort of male gazy kind of lens, which is really exciting. Natasha Breyer was the cinematographer on that and she's, she's amazing. Oh my God. She is so brilliant. And, um, and so, yeah, we definitely, we definitely talked about repulsion. It was, it was always in our our conversations as we were developing the film together. I feel like Neon Demon is kind of a little bit of a twist on repulsion in the sense that men feel constantly like this threat in her life. I mean, the Keanu character, the photographer Jack character, um, it's constantly like worry about men. And then the real danger is the women. and so that I think is just this interesting sort of twist on, on on the ideas that are brought up by repulsion. Well, I think it's really interesting. You know, Neon Demon. When I was writing it, I I went around and I interviewed a, a lot of women, some a couple of like models, um, and a few of the women in the movie are models. Abby Lee is a model, um, and then also just friends, just like women that I know. And I was like, let's talk about beauty. T- tell me about how you think about your own beauty. Tell me about how you think about your own body. And it was always so interesting to me because <laughs> the the fear, and this is not news, but like every single person, it was like the fear of their own body was just about the fear of 
men not liking their bodies anymore. And I just, I think that part of the neon demon for me was just about that sort of, um, um, that ingrained patriarchy, that ingrained male gaze that we as women just sort of like accept from an early age. And then we become our own villains mm-hmm. and which is just, it's crazy. And I think that that's, um, you know, a lot of how the women in the film operated, um, at the end of the day, the men weren't important at all. They sort of disappear from the movie and it's just about the, the women's desire to like literally consume this young, new, fresh blood, this new model who is getting the eyes on her, you know, and, and how, cold and how dark it feels when you when you age and and you've subscribed to that kind of belief right that that the male gaze is everything to a woman and the thinness is everything to a woman and that you will eventually just sort of implode and that you will become that that villain as well anyway i was i was really interested when i was having those kinds of conversations with um, my female friends. And so certainly that became a, a part of the film as well. In Repulsion, what I kind of appreciate about it, watching it as a woman, is um, there's this expectation of Carol, that she mm-hmm. should be receptive to these men and she should make them feel like she likes them. You know, mm-hmm. I think there's a line that Colin says where he's like, I don't think you like me very much or something. Or he like she has to make him feel comfortable. And mm-hmm. I think as women, we constantly sort of feel this this like, oh, I have to make this man feel safe or comfortable in order for our to, us to protect our own safety in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she just sort of rejects that. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's funny because Polanski in a couple of interviews and like on the Criterion um, commentary, he says she has a problem. But the way I interpret it is the whole world around her is the problem. Mm. <laughs> you know? So I mean, definitely. Yeah. So it's interesting because I look at even though Carol turns into this murderer, I'm like, girl, I get it. Like relatable. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> like when she's all disheveled in the house, I'm like, that looks like me. That looks familiar. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, what's the, there are these tiny, tiny scenes in the film where she's looking out the window at, um, it's like a group of nuns. Yes. The nuns. I love when she's looking at the nuns. So I think about that all the time too. And what, I mean, what I love about Polanski's films, uh, Heather and I just watched, um, knife on the water the other day. And like, every shot is some kind of symbol you know there's some kind of like you can you can look at a shot and you can read like 10 things into it and i i just love that and i think about the nuns all the time and i think you can interpret that in a number of different ways but i think it applies to what you're saying which is that here is a group of women who have chosen to live outside of like the rules of the the traditional rules of the world for women they're they're virgins and they don't necessarily have to deal with men on a day-to-day basis. They're cloistered together as women. Um, and I think that that's really interesting, her just gazing at them. And I've always wondered if, if that's 
um, Carol's personal like longing mm-hmm. um, for that kind of of life where she doesn't have to make men happy or where she um, it's it's almost like a sim- she's gazing at a symbol of innocence um, where she because I my interpretation of the film is generally that she does have some kind of sexual trauma mm-hmm. um, and I think that that last image of the the photograph is what sort of seals the deal to me it's like um it it just feels like that sort of like rope a dope punch at the very end where you've just been like fighting the whole movie and then it's like boom there there it is um it always knocks my socks off when i see it at the very end so that is always that has always been my interpretation but her gazing at those nuns always feels to me just like um like that wouldn't wouldn't that be nice you know i'm sure there are a million other interpretations but oh i I absolutely think she's looking at the nuns longingly and and the nuns are laughing and they're playing they're like playing soccer or something and yeah there's this real sense of innocent play that Mm -hmm. i feel that yes i think carol is is childlike and and that she might be stunted in her Mm -hmm. sort of emotional growth which can Mm -hmm. be due to childhood trauma um, and I, I, I would also, you know, you know, make the argument that she, uh, is suffering from, from childhood trauma, but, um, you know, based on the, the photograph, but yeah, it's like, she's doesn't get to play. And mm-hmm. I think that's just what she wants is to be in this like safe environment of women. That's not invaded by men and it's not invaded by men's attentions. And, and I think there's some really interesting performance choices with the men of, grabbing her hair and grabbing her arm. And, and then the, the, um, Michael who's having the affair with her sister is pinching her sister's butt. Yeah. You know, it's just like, you have no space. Autonomy. Yeah. And, and you're supposed to grant that that's in this world. That's what you're supposed to grant. And I, I do have to, you know, I, I, I have my own obviously interpretations of, of what that means. And I'm like, does Polanski like is he showing this as like oh look at this girl she you know she can't hang <laughs> or is he saying look at this like I take it as look at the oppression of this world where yeah. men won't leave you alone you can't yeah. walk down the street or eat lunch or do your job or do anything without having to like cater to their attention yeah that's my, that's always my interpretation of it too I mean I, again, coming from a place of her sort of internalized uh, childhood trauma, like looking at those nuns and, and seeing them play, I think is a really good point. But like if you if you're looking at the whole film as a lens of like she had some kind of sexual abuse as a child or some kind of childhood abuse, then she was a person who never got to play. Right. Right. And and so I think that that's really interesting. I think even the fact that she works at a beauty salon is really interesting because there are those like up close shots of her like painting painting women's nails and making them beautiful. And again, it's all for, um, the benefit and the joy of, of men, um, in in the film. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. And the, the, the customers that she has repeatedly, these older women who are constantly getting those face masks and stuff, (laughs) and it's not, you know, plastic surgery or anything, but you're like, gosh, this lady's back again. (laughs) It's a lot of work to be a woman for a man. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, well, let's take another really quick break and we will be back in a minute with Mary Laws. 
Hi, I'm Jackie Cation. Hi, I'm Lori Kilmartin. And we have a podcast called The Jackie and Lori Show. Who are you, Lori Kilmartin? Oh, my God. So much pressure. Uh, I'm a stand-up. I've been doing stand-up since 1987. Uh, I'm a writer for Conan. I've written a couple books, have a couple CDs out, have a special out. Who are you, Jackie? Well, I, too, am a stand-up comic since 1984. And uh, I do the road like a maniac and uh, don't have a cool writing job, but I have four albums out working on a new album. We talk about stand-up. We talk about uh, all the different parts of stand-up comedy. So that's the Jackie and Lori show, and you should subscribe on Maximum Fun if you want to hear that. <laughs> and I would encourage you not to. <laughs> And we are back, Switchblade Sisters, with Mary Laws talking about repulsion. I wanted to also ask, because uh, thinking about the Apartment trilogy, um, they're films that really could be um, plays because they're all set in one setting. And I was wondering, you know, when you transitioned from playwriting to stage and screen, I mean, do you have a different approach to writing and obviously writing horror for... um, stage and screen. I was reading about your play Blueberry Toast. Yeah. Which all takes place in one house, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, one room. And I mean, it sounds amazing. I would love to see it at some point. Um, but, uh, you know, what is your, like, how do you, is is this idea of like all in one setting? I mean, that can be a, a, a trope for horror films as well, or not mm-hmm. even a trope, but like something that people do um, to create that kind of sense of claustrophobia. I mean, is there a, is, is there a, ch- a change that you've had to make to your writing or, or or not necessarily? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're completely different art forms. And there are certainly skills that you learn from one that you can apply to the other. But, um, you know, like if I'm talking about Blueberry Toast, like that's a play that I think ha- it's not a horror play, but it has elements of like high tension and of um, of uh, like sort of. Uh, the horrific way that a household uh, or marriage can disintegrate into violence. Um, And I, I think that, but it unfolds in real time. You know, the whole play is about an hour and 10 minutes long and uh, it really just tracks from A to Z in totally real time. There's no intermission there. It's all one scene. There aren't interruptions. Um, I think that, you know, if we're talking about repulsion, the difference would be that you you can't track that play in real time. And I think that one of the beautiful things about that play is that once she's there in the house and truly unraveling in the house is, uh, you know, visually unraveling as sort of a symbolism of her internal monologue as, as, as her brain is, um, you lose track of time completely. And I think that that is, that's something that film can do that theater can't do. You can never lose track of time in theater. Not really. Although, I mean, I'd love, I'd love for someone to try or, or, or tell me how. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just feel like what's beautiful about theater is that you yourself are going on that real time journey. But, but in, in film, you know, you can, you can play, there are cuts. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I think that that's really exciting because I think then you can take a character on, you know, a, a different kind of journey. Um, I, I wrote an episode of Monsterland, which is, I think our third episode. Um, 
set in New Orleans, Louisiana, about a woman who is in a house and sort of losing her mind um, in in this the sort of like uh, third quarter of the the episode. And definitely Repulsion was an inspiration when I was writing that. But it also, it too has a lot of cuts and it feels like endless night. And I don't think that that's something that I've ever really seen in theater. I, I think, of course, anything is possible, but I, I love that, um, that in film you can stretch and disorient time. And that feels like, again, very real to me. That feels like a real experience of like, having a night full of anxiety, you know, Mm -hmm. it feels like endless night. It feels like you don't know if it's 12 in the morning or if it's 4am. And so I think that's a really exciting thing that Repulsion does very well. Um, One thing I also wanted to talk about, we haven't touched on Succession yet, but that is probably (laughs) the thing that you've worked on that it's not horror. Although, could an argument be made (laughs) that there are elements (laughs) of horror? Certain kind of horror. (laughs) Certain kind of monsters on succession. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. Um, I mean, succession was such a pleasure to work on. I was only with those writers for one season. It it sort of worked out perfectly um, as I was transitioning off of preacher and I was developing monster land and I had this sort of window of time, uh, and got to go to, to London and hang out with, um, I mean, I call them the X-Men. Those writers are so fantastic. I I hung out with the X-Men for three months. Um, and, um, I mean, I've never been in a smarter room, um, of human beings or a funnier or even more casual room of human beings. I think um, I learned a lot by watching uh, the way that Jesse Armstrong runs a room um, with like short hours and a lot of great grace. And it's a huge room. Um, you know, Monsterland, I had a writer's room of four people plus me. And I think when I was in the succession room, there were like 10 or something. It's a really, really a lot of a meeting of a lot of different minds. Um but I, yeah, it's just, it was a very generous place to work. It was so outside of the box for me. It was, I almost, I think like, you know, when, when they were asking me to come in and, and talk to Jesse about the job, I, I think I called my agent and I was just like, are you guys sure? <laughs> like, this really doesn't feel, this doesn't really feel like me, but, um, it, you know, I think, I think the thing that did really resonate for me was the exploration of, of like a a really good character study, because I think all those characters are just so, um, uh, really well drawn and, and so defined. And so, um, that, that was fun. I think certainly there were times when I would pitch sort of wild ideas that they would be like, no, no um, hands crawling out of the wall. To yeah. Kendall. Really? Yeah. Why? Um, yeah. Kendall doesn't take drugs and have like a wild manic panic dream. Um, but, um, but I think that, you know, I, I love anything that challenges me, anything that challenges me makes me better. And it was certainly a challenge to, access that part of myself as a writer. Um, and also, I mean, it's, it really functions a lot like a comedy room because they're all 
for the most part, comedy writers, like a lot of those writers came off of Veep or were actually still working on the last season of Veep while they were working on the second season of Succession with me. And so it was just a fast room too. I mean, my girlfriend is a comedian and so she's really quite used to comedy rooms, but I would, I would call her on the way home and I'd be like, I can't think of my jokes fast enough, (laughs) you know? Um, and, and when I, when I tell people that succession is really a comedy, they all sort of like laugh, but I think it is. Oh, it is. I think that it's, you know, it totally is. It's, it's a, it's a dark satirization of, um, these like very real, well-drawn people. Um, so anyway, but yes, it was nothing, nothing but a joy to work on. And I think that anything that challenges you just stretches you and it makes you so much better. Well, that's a great note to end on. Mary, thank you so much for talking to us about, about repulsion and neon demon and all of these amazing things that you're working on and everyone watch Monsterland. I cannot stress enough. It is so good. Oh, thank you so much. If you would like to tell us what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer this week is Jordan Cowling. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. You really make me feel wanted. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.